Luke chapter 2, verse 15. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, And they came with haste. Someone has called that the first Christmas rush, and I think it's probably true. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. That little phrase from the middle of verse 15, let us now go even unto Bethlehem. Gracious Father, teach us from your word May we receive the word readily. May we be prepared in heart and mind to hear your word. And may the word generate faith and help us to grow as we practice the word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It is amazing how an unknown place on the face of the earth can suddenly become very famous because of a famous person. I must confess to you that one of my worst subjects in school was geography. I think I could have learned to like the subject if I had learned to like the teacher. But he was uh, a difficult man to get along with. He enjoyed popping quizzes at us. He thought that the way to teach geography was to make you memorize how to spell long, involved names of places that you'd never see or hear, certainly never visit. But I confess to you, I didn't even know Plains, Georgia existed until the elections came along and all of a sudden Plains, Georgia is now a whistle stop and a bus stop and everybody wants to run down there and see something. I seriously doubt that Concord, Massachusetts would have made it into the history books were it not for Emerson and Thoreau. When we were over in England, we stopped at a little place called Stokes Poges. Now you wouldn't get off the train or the bus to see Stokes Poges except for one thing. A man named Gray was in that graveyard one day and he wrote a famous poem that we had to memorize in high school, Gray's Elegy, written in a country churchyard. Except for Mr. Gray, nobody would pay any attention to Stokes Poges. The same thing is true of uh, Bethlehem. In our Lord's day, Bethlehem was the city of David. And of course, everyone knew David. David was the great king who built the monarchy in Israel. Today, we don't think of David. If uh, you were to stop people on the streets in the mid-rush of uh, Christmas season and say to them, when I mention this word Bethlehem, what do you think of? They'd say, Jesus, not David. Our Lord Jesus Christ has taken a little village, which today has about 25,000 inhabitants, much bigger now than it was back in our Lord's day, taken this little village and given it worldwide prominence. Jesus was born there. And tonight, as we conclude our uh, Lord's Day and Christmas Day observance, let's answer the question, why? Why Bethlehem? Now, Bethlehem is mentioned uh, about 40 times in the Old Testament. That's not a great deal. It's mentioned eight times in the New Testament. Bethlehem was nothing that the uh, travel agents wrote home about. 
Today it is because uh, people make a pilgrimage there because of Jesus. But why Bethlehem? Why not Jerusalem? That's where the Magi expected to find him. That's where all the important people should be born, Jerusalem. Or why not Athens, the place of wisdom, or Rome, the place of power? No, it was Bethlehem, the little town of Bethlehem. And so we're answering the question tonight, why would God choose Bethlehem as the place for our Savior's birth? There may be many reasons, but I think the main reason is because of the associations that are involved in the little town of Bethlehem. Because when you read your Bible, you find that Bethlehem is associated with areas of life that get very close to us. Now, what are these associations? Well, first of all, Bethlehem is associated with the essentials of life. When you read your Bible and track down Bethlehem, you find that Bethlehem is associated with the essentials of life. Now, what are the essentials of life? I was reading a book some years ago and I found a little paragraph that I haven't been able to forget. In this paragraph, it said that a survey was made back in 1900. Now, some of you were around at that time, but back in 1900, a survey was made asking people the question, how many things do you think you really need to live? That is, to have a comfortable uh, existence. And back in 1900, there were 70 two different things that were named. They repeated the same survey 50 years later. And would you believe that the result was 496 things people needed just to enjoy life? And yet Jesus said a man's life, a woman's life, does not consist in the, what, abundance of the things that we possess. When you go to Bethlehem, you get very close to the necessities of life. Now, what are they? Bread, water. You say, Pastor, what are you talking about? Let's start with Bethlehem. The name Bethlehem in the Hebrew means house of bread. When you read the book of Ruth, which is one of the most beautiful books in the Bible, you get to Ruth chapter 1 and you find a famine. Here in the house of bread, Bethlehem, is a famine. God had sent discipline to his people to wake them up. Bethlehem means house of bread, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem because Jesus Christ came as the bread of life. It was no accident that that little village was named Bethlehem. It was no accident that the one who was born in Bethlehem dared to stand before the Jewish people and say, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Oh, but Moses, Moses gave us manna back in the wilderness. Jesus said, Moses didn't give you that bread. My father gave you that bread, and he is now giving you this bread. The bread that Moses gave you sustained life. The bread that I give you gives you life. If you only knew how dead you are, and if you just receive me, if you just partake of me, you'd receive life and you'd never die. And for that, they turned around and walked away and said, this man's crazy. Jesus turned to his disciples and said, you going to leave? And Peter spoke up and for once in his life, didn't have his foot in his mouth, he said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter got the message. Our Lord wasn't talking about literal flesh and blood. 
When he said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, he was not speaking literally. He was speaking spiritually. In fact, he himself said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. The flesh profits nothing. And Peter got that message. And Peter said, Lord, you've got the words of eternal life. And when we receive your word, we are receiving you and we get life. Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem because he's the bread of life. And bread is one of the necessities for life. It's hard to believe that one of the big problems we're going to be facing in this country is hunger. They're facing it in many parts of the world today. Millions of people are dying of starvation. We never thought the day would come in this country where folks would be wondering, will there be enough to eat? The greatest hunger in the world today really is not hunger for physical food. Why do you labor for that which perishes, said the prophet? Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? Why do you spend your money on that which doesn't satisfy? The greatest hunger today is a spiritual hunger. Jesus was born at Bethlehem because Bethlehem is associated with the necessities of life, the essentials of life, bread. Now, I speak, I'm sure, primarily to Christian people tonight. There may be some here tonight who have never partaken of this bread of life. I hope that someday you will. I hope that tonight you will. But let me say a word to you who are Christians. Have you not found out that partaking of Jesus Christ, the bread of life, satisfies you? You don't have to have anything else. You don't need what the world has to offer. You don't need any of the offers of the devil. When you partake of the bread of life, it satisfies. But bread is not the only essential of life. Water is also an essential. You say, well, when does Bethlehem get associated with water? Turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 23. This is one of the most beautiful pictures of David anywhere in the Bible. I wish that the people who remember David only as an adulterer and a liar would turn to 2 Samuel 23 and see the true greatness of this man. Verse 14, And David was then in a stronghold, he was hiding, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Now you may say, well, that's a childish thing for David to do. You know, it's like some of us adults, we say, oh, if I could just go back to my home again. Frankly, I don't want to go back to my home. There's nobody there anymore anyway, and you can't go home again. When you leave father and mother and you cleave unto your wife and you have your family, even in memory, it's difficult to go back again. Nostalgia is a beautiful thing, but David's not being nostalgic here. You know what David's saying? Oh, I wish that Bethlehem were free. I wish that somehow God would deliver this land from the bondage of Saul, the bondage of the Philistines, and I want to get back to Bethlehem and get some water from that well. It was not childish desire on his part. It was a very manly prayer. Now, David had men who were so close to him, they understood his smallest whisper. You see, David didn't get on a, get on a pedestal and say, Man, I want you to hear this. I want some water. David just sighed and under his breath said, Oh, that I had a drink from that well at Bethlehem. And three of his men heard him say that. I wonder if we're so close to the heart of Jesus Christ 
that we can hear his quietest sigh. Does the Lord have to get on a soapbox with a baseball bat and tell us what he wants us to do? Or are we close enough to his heart to know what it is he wants us to do? And these three mighty men said, if David wants that water, we're going to get it. That's devotion. That's love. And courageously they broke through the host of the Philistines and they brought the water back and they gave it to David. Now, if David had been a pygmy, if David had been a cheap kind of a character, if David had been a dictator, he would have said, thanks, man, that's the kind of obedience I like, but he didn't. He took one look at that cup of water and said, this is not water. This is your blood. How can I take this cup of water which was secured by your blood and treat it like common water. This water is too great for that. Let's give it to the Lord. You see, a man's greatness is not shown by the way he takes responsibilities. A man's greatness is shown by what he does with privileges. David had the privilege of asking for water and David had the privilege of drinking that water, but David was a big man. And David said, let's give this to the Lord. I'm not going to cheapen the lives of my three great men. And he poured it out before the Lord. And he said, be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this, that is, drink it. Is not this the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. Bethlehem is associated with water. Now, I won't go into this in detail. I just drop it into your heart to think about it. This is the Christmas story in the Old Testament. I recall being at seminary and Dr. Peter Stianson. Now, some of you can remember Dr. Peter Stianson, a great man of God. It was just before Christmas break, and we'd gone to chapel, and Dr. Stianson stood up in the pulpit of the chapel to give a Christmas devotion, and in his good Norwegian dialect, he said, I want to read for you the Christmas story according to Second Samuel. And I thought to myself, that man, uh, he, he's mistaken. And then he read this passage, and it clicked. Jesus Christ is the well of water at Bethlehem. Jesus Christ is the one who came to give us not only the bread of life, but the water of life. People are hungry and people are thirsty. And Jesus says, I am that well of water, and I can put that water within you, and it will spring up into everlasting life. These are the essentials of life. Jesus was born at Bethlehem because he brings to us the essentials of life. Food, water, the bread of life, the water of life. There's a second reason why our Lord was born at Bethlehem. For Bethlehem is not only associated with the essentials of life, it is associated with the experiences of life. I hear people say occasionally, Pastor, don't talk to us about Jesus. He lived back 2,000 years ago. Okay, he was a great man, he was a good man, but what's that got to do with me? I mean, here I am, I've got bills to pay, I've got burdens to carry, I've got problems, I need a job, my kids are in trouble, I, I need help. Don't talk to me about Jesus. And yet that's the very person he needs. If I were to stop preaching right now, and just reach out into this congregation and summon people whom I know and know well and ask them to stand in this pulpit and tell you what Jesus did for them. They had problems. They had burdens. They had difficulties. They were fighting battles. They couldn't see the end of the tunnel. 
In fact, it wasn't a tunnel, it was a grave. And then Jesus came on the scene and he got involved in the experiences of their life. And oh, what a difference it made. Now, what are the experiences of life that Jesus identifies with? Well, let's go to Bethlehem. Genesis chapter 35. The first time Bethlehem is mentioned in the Bible, it has to do with a funeral. Jacob has gotten right with God. After over 20 years of running away from God and bargaining and scheming, Jacob says, I'm going to go back to Bethel. I'm going to go back to that altar where I met the Lord. And so everything is going beautifully now. They go back to Bethel. Then they journey from Bethel. Verse 16, Genesis 35. And there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. Now, Ephrath means fruitful. That's the Old Testament name for Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephrathah. And Rachel travailed. Now, Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. And Rachel had prayed this prayer. Oh, give me children or I die. And she'd born Joseph, and now she's going to bear Benjamin, and she's going to die at Bethlehem. And she travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass as her soul was in departing, for she died that she called his name Ben-Oni. Now, Ben-Oni means son of my sorrow. What a horrible name to give to a boy. Can you imagine the little kid out playing and his father comes and hollers, son of my sorrow, come home, son of my sorrow. And his playmates say, it's a funny name you've got. And he'd hang his head and say, well, when I was born, my mother died. But his father called him Benjamin. That means son of my right hand. Now, do you see Jesus here? Jesus is the son of our sorrow, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus is the son of God's right hand, for he today is seated at the right hand of God. The first mention of Bethlehem in your Bible, it is identified with one of the great experiences of life, birth, death, birth, death. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. Benjamin and Joseph were favorite sons of Jacob, but oh, the price he paid to get them. I've seen the Lord Jesus identified in the experiences of life in birth. I really feel sorry for any couple that brings a baby into the world and doesn't lift their eyes and say, Thank you, Lord. It always thrills my heart when our young couples get here on this platform and bring their babies and dedicate them to the Lord. Jesus is identified with the children in birth, and Jesus is identified with us in death. I find that my Lord not only went to wedding receptions, he also went to funerals. Please don't ever tell me that Jesus Christ is not a part of our lives today. I have been to too many funerals. I have stood by the bedside of too many people who have been dying. 
I've been through the valley with too many of God's people to know otherwise. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, and he's identified with our sorrow. But Bethlehem is not only associated with the experience of sorrow, it's associated with the experience of joy. The story of Ruth, which I'll not take time to tell, it's a wedding. Chapter 1 of Ruth, you have Ruth weeping. And she begs her mother-in-law, please don't send me away. I want your God to be my God. Ruth was converted. She goes back to Bethlehem, and in chapter 2, you find Ruth working. She's out there in the field, gleaning. Chapter 3, you find Ruth waiting. Boaz has fallen in love with her, and he's trying to work things out. Chapter 4, you find Ruth wedding, getting married. And there's great joy because a baby is born, and because that baby was born, David was born, and because David was born, Jesus was born. At Bethlehem, you have the experience of joy. I love the story of Ruth because it's such a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus. Ruth, an outcast. Ruth, the Moabitess. God's law says an Ammonite and a Moabite shall not enter the congregation of the Lord unto the tenth generation. And Ruth would never have gotten in except for one thing. Boaz loved her. And I would never have gotten in except for one thing. Jesus loved me. And Boaz was willing to pay the price to get Ruth. He called the other fellow over and said, Oh, such a one! Yeah. The ground that belonged to our relative is for sale. Will you buy it? He said, I'll buy it. There's a twinkle in Boaz's eye, and he says, Do you realize that if you buy that property, you also get Ruth, the widow? Oh, says the man, whose name we don't know, and it's a good thing. Oh, he says, I can't do that. I may jeopardize my own inheritance. Boaz said, Then I'll take Ruth, and I'll pay the price. And I'm not worried about jeopardizing my inheritance. My Jesus did that. God the Father pointed to us one day, see those people down there, they're outcasts. They'll never get in. They'll never make it. And the Lord Jesus said, I love them. And I'm going to go down there and pay the price. I'm not worried about jeopardizing my inheritance. I'm going to make them my inheritance. And so tonight we are a part of the inheritance of God because of Jesus Christ. Bethlehem is associated with the experiences of life, sorrow and joy. I don't know what kind of a year you've had. I suppose if I picked the right day, you'd say it was the wrong year, bad year. Pick the right day, it was a good year. I don't know what kind of a year you've had, but I know this much. Every experience you've gone through, Christ has been there. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. When you go through the waters, I'll be with you. When you go through the fire, I'm going to be with you. They can't drown you. They can't burn you. I'm there with you. That's why he was born at Bethlehem. He is identified with the experiences of life. One final verse, the verse you expected me to use tonight. Micah, chapter 5, and verse 2. Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. There is a third association with Bethlehem. Jesus Christ is associated with the essentials of life. He's associated with the experiences of life. And our Lord Jesus Christ, praise God, is associated with the expectations of life. 
But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Verse 3 goes on to say that Israel will go through a time of travail and shall return and God shall stand and feed the people of Israel. This was written, Micah wrote this little prophecy about Bethlehem when all the hope was gone in the land. The good kings were gone. Ahaz was on the throne. Ahaz was a schemer, a political shrewd wheeler, dealer. Ahaz was using wizards and sorcerers to try to control things. Isaiah the prophet said, why don't you call on God? No, I won't call on God. About the time that things were getting pretty dark, idolatry and covetousness and drunkenness and wickedness were covering the land, God gave to Micah a prophecy. And he said, you know, the hope of Israel is going to be in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem, not the throne in Jerusalem, but a stable in Bethlehem. You see, God always has something for us in the future. All of our expectation is of God. The psalmist said that. My expectation is of the Lord. My expectation is not of the stock market. My expectation is not of the bank book. My expectation is not of my own muscle and strength, says the psalmist. My expectation is of the Lord. He is God from beginning to end. He is Alpha and Omega. He knows the end from the beginning. And God looked down at Bethlehem and said, all right, all the hope is there. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. There was a bombing in Bethlehem this Christmas season. They were afraid something was going to happen down there. There are tensions. And yet, whether we like it or not, the hope, of this world, your hope, the hope of your family, the hope of your body, the hope of your life is wrapped up in what happened in Bethlehem when Jesus Christ was born. Paul says, Jesus Christ is our hope. We were without hope, and now in Jesus Christ we have hope. We have hope for the body. If in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. Jesus Christ gives us hope. And therefore, we walk into a new year without fear. I'll not be here to see it, but uh, next Sunday in the Sunday papers, they will list all the predictions. What does Jeannie Dixon have to say? What does President Carter have to say? What does the Supreme Court have to say? Quite frankly... I'm not too worried. I'm interested in one thing. What does God's word have to say? And God's word has this to say. If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior and your Lord, you have hope. And hope in the Bible is not hope so. Hope in the Bible is no so. We know in whom we have believed. We know that he's going to come again. because we know him as our Savior. On Friday, December 22nd, 
1865. That's just about one year after this church was founded by Mr. Moody. But on that date, a caravan arrived in Jerusalem, a group of travelers who had come to the Holy Land. Two days later, on Christmas Eve, they traveled down to Bethlehem and stood there in the shepherd's fields at Bethlehem. A young pastor was in that group. He was 30 years old. And as he stood there, God began to write a poem in his heart, and he wrote it down. He sent it home to his church organist in Boston. That's how Phillips Brooks wrote O Little Town of Bethlehem. Our hymn book gives the date of 1868, but his biographers are very sure that he wrote that in 1865. Little difference what year it was written. It was the experience that did it. Phillips Brooks was a great preacher. He's remembered primarily for this Christmas song, yet he was a great preacher, a great friend of Mr. D.L. Moody. I think O Little Town of Bethlehem best states what we believe as Christians, especially those last two verses. And though we have already sung the song, that's a dress rehearsal, I'd like us to sing just those last two verses of number 121. For Phillips Brooks has written into this song the true meaning of our Lord coming to Bethlehem. Our Lord Jesus Christ identifies himself with the essentials of life. He's the bread of life. He's the water of life. He identifies himself with us in the experiences of life, birth and death, joy, sorrow. Most of all, he identifies with us in the expectations of life. We're looking forward to our Lord Jesus coming again.